Special thanks to our podcast sponsors, Brigitte and Bashar Kalai, Hallie Vanderheider, and Sippy and AJ Karana. At Crime Stoppers of Houston, we believe in safety for all, and to achieve that, it's necessary to have balanced conversations where all are represented. Here's where we come together to do just that. Welcome to The Balanced Voice. The 13th Amendment states that neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. 48 years ago, Nevada essentially began a social experiment when they legalized brothels and prostitution. They're the only state to have done this. Today, that social experiment has proven to fail. Nevada currently has 63% higher rates of illegal sex trade than any other state in the nation, and less than 10% of prostitution happening in Nevada is legal. This is of grave concern to us at Crime Stoppers because it points to our ever-present argument that a highly sexualized culture increases demand for commercial sex and in turn creates more opportunity for victimization of all people. In today's special episode of The Balanced Voice, we talk to Kristen Price, legal counsel for the National Center on Sexual Exploitation, about a case she will be arguing on behalf of Nevada victim Becca Charleston on December 9th. This is a pioneering case led by survivors against the state of Nevada that argues legal prostitution is a violation of the 13th Amendment. If you are raising a child in America, this is a conversation that you absolutely cannot miss. We can't wait for you to hear from Kristen and ask for you to join the fight to end sexual exploitation of everyone. To learn more about this case in particular, please visit notsaferwomen.com or click the link in our show notes. Without further ado, here's your host, Renya Mancarios. We are thrilled to have a special episode today. The National Center on Sexual Exploitation, Nicosi, the law center there will be arguing that Nevada's pro-prostitution law conflicts with federal laws that ban sex trafficking and violates the 13th Amendment's ban on any form of involuntary servitude. The case, Charleston v. State of Nevada, will be argued before the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals coming up soon, December 9th. And the Nicosi Law Center has been named co-counsel with the Nevada-based attorney, Jason Guianasso, I might have said that wrong, um, but joining us today on behalf of Nicosi's Kristen Price, legal uh, legal counsel for the National Center on Sexual Exploitation, who will be arguing the case. Kristen, thank you so much for joining us. It's such an honor to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. This is a big deal. This is a very big case. Um, can you walk us through the background of what's going on here? Absolutely. Federal anti-trafficking laws are predicated on the 13th Amendment, which bans slavery and involuntary servitude. It was enacted after the Civil War and it prohibited states from reestablishing basically slavery in new or different forms through abusive economic practices. But this is what Nevada's legal scheme, legal prostitution scheme is producing. Vulnerable women and girls are commodified and held in sexual servitude. And so in this case, Survivors have sued the state of Nevada for creating the sex trade environment that makes their abuse not only possible, but virtually certain. 
Nevada has a sex tourism industry that thrives on the demand that this legal scheme has created. And so as a result, women and girls are brought into Nevada across state lines to be prostituted and trafficked. And obviously this violates both the federal anti-trafficking laws and also the 13th Amendment. Looking at the notes here, it says for 48 years, Nevada has allowed legal brothel prostitutions to exist. Uh, they're the only state in America to allow this. They have the highest rate of commercial sex, both legal and illegal in the U.S., with per capita rate 63% higher than the next highest state of New York um, and double that of Florida. So, you know, you talk about uh, survivors, victims, uh, bringing this suit. So who are the plaintiffs? I, I read um, about two women, Becca and Angela. Can you tell us a little bit about their stories? Yes. Becca Charleston, um, one of the plaintiffs, she was a 17-year-old runaway who came under the control of her trafficker. He brought her from Texas to Nevada. She was sold um, in Las Vegas, and then she was sold also into one of the legal brothels. Um, and then plaintiff Angela Delgado-Williams um, has a similar story of being preyed upon and, and abused and controlled and brought to Nevada. She was sex traffic trafficked in Las Vegas through a legal escort agency. So legal in both cases, you have the legal scheme overlapping with the sex trafficking. And you can read more about Becca's case and Angela's case on the, on the site notsafeforwomen.com, notsafeforwomen.com. Both of these women um, share a little bit of their stories. It's filled with regular rape, forced, they're forced to perform sex, perform sex acts um, upon fear of beatings and other abuse. I mean, it's really, really horrific when you think about this, but let's break down what's happening and let's look at um, some of the myths and, and ask some really, you know, honest questions. I mean, I would almost think that legalizing this industry protects the women. But as I was reading the notes and the data, that it seems to be anything but. It actually seems to be making it worse. Is that what you guys are finding? That's what we're finding. The legalization has not made it at all safe for women um, for a couple of reasons. One is that the legalization created a demand, created incentives for sex buyers to travel to Nevada. And that demand exceeds, you know, the whatever the brothels um, are involved in. And so there's a lot of, there's a whole illegal market that's much more profitable and that's much larger than just the legal brothels. So you have obviously all the sex trafficking and abuses there, it's not even regulated. Then when it comes to the legal brothels, um, the state regulation the piece of it the state really oversees, as opposed to the counties, is a regulation that requires people in prostitution, so mostly women, to get tested every week for STIs. There is no corresponding requirement for the sex buyers. So it's sending a clear message that you know, Nevada is, is safer for sex buyers. So that's, that's kind of where the state has chosen to put its kind of enforcement priority when it comes to the regulation. Um, but then the other piece of it is what the counties are doing because the brothels are located just in a couple of counties, about seven counties throughout the state um, because it's not legal throughout the state. It's only legal in counties where there are fewer than 700,000 people. 
And in those counties, the brothels are permitted to behave in all kinds of very restrictive and abusive ways toward the women. And the counties don't stop them. Um, in one county outside of Reno, the brothel owner is actually a county commissioner. So he sits on the board that uh, regulates the brothels. So when you look at the notion of legalizing, I mean, you would think about with legalizing an industry come licensing requirements, um, health and safety standards, regulations, an ability to report abuse, um, you know, enforcement, punishment of some sort, but the numbers and the percentages don't seem to support that. And it looks like where you know, in the counties that have made this type of action activity legal, you're actually seeing an increased percentage of um, horrific abuse of these women. Yes, there's an increase, I think, based on, I mean, there's an increase in even for women outside of the sex trade in many of these mm. counties in terms of the rates of sexual violence, of domestic violence. Nevada has one of the highest domestic violence homicide, homicide rates in the country. And so you see this, um, this culture of impunity for, um, for prostitution and for sex trafficking with it and how that obviously impacts the survivors of that industry, but also affects women in general in that area. It's a, I'm reading a survey of 45 women who experienced prostitution in legal Nevada brothels reports, uh, reported 57% of the women gave all or part of their income to their pimp or trafficker. 81% of the women reported that they wanted to escape prostitution regardless of its legal status. 23 reported, uh, 23% reported self-harm, um, that they were prostituted as a child. 50% had been prostituted illegally. 47% had pornography made of them while in prostitution. 47% had been homeless. 44% had been verbally abused while being prostituted. And, you know, it's interesting to look at, you know, to think about that in a city, county, state where prostitution is legitimized, the entire community becomes inadvertently an area for grooming and breeding. And when you think of what that means for children, it's scary. It's very scary. I mean, one example of that kind of cultural grooming is that in Reno, one of the major owners of strip clubs in the city um, is also the track coach for the high school girls team. Oh my goodness. So one of the, one of the major owners for, of a brothel is a track coach working with young girls a, a strip club because a strip brothels okay. aren't aren't yeah, yeah it, brothels aren't legal in reno proper um so i mean certainly prostitution is is happening out of them and, and sex trafficking as well but that's actually shocking and so let's talk about um some of the myths around this you know we've been talking about sex trafficking as a growing industry uh, for years 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 and you've seen the culture shift where, you know, the average woman, the average person recognizes, has heard the term sex trafficking, is ready to sort of roll up their sleeves to stop it, but also doesn't fully understand it. And you still see, you still hear the question like, you know, well, what if these are just, this is what 
some girls just want to do. This is the industry they want to work in. I mean, what are your, what are you finding and what is your response to that? And is the push to remove the legalization ultimately going to hurt women who want to do this as a profession? I think it's really interesting to talk to people who have been out of the industry for some time because they would tell a story of dissociation in order to survive what's being done to them. They have Mm. to disassociate from the experience. And many of them will tell you, yes, when I was in the middle of it, I would have told you that I wanted it. I had to. I couldn't face what was happening to me otherwise. Um, There's a book that I would recommend to anyone who wants to understand this a bit better called Paid For um, by Rachel Moran, who's a survivor leader and activist. And it really powerfully, I think, explains the kind of um, effect that trauma has on how people see themselves and what kinds of things they say to themselves and others to really try to get through it. So I think that's one piece of it um, to keep in mind in terms of people saying, oh, this is something I want to do. I think another thing is When I hear legalization or decrim advocates saying this is a reason to make it legal, it feels like a double standard to me because kind of going back to the slavery, um, the historic connection really, right after the the, um, 13th Amendment was ratified, Congress also passed laws outlawing debt bondage. You can't sell yourself into slavery to work on a farm or, or whatever in order to pay off a debt even if you want to, even if you feel like that's better than the alternative, it's better than being out of money or not having a place to be altogether. And so there are a number of kinds of transactions that for human rights reasons, we don't, we don't allow them and we kind of consider it irrelevant whether someone wants to do that thing. Debt bondage is one, um, selling your organs is another. And so I think when I hear someone saying, well, prostitution should be an exception, it seems like a little bit that the gendered nature of prostitution um, is kind of obscuring the moral the moral clarity there, like almost um, being a bit an apologist for male entitlement to bisex, because there's not really a reason to treat it differently from these from these other practices that we've already decided, you know, we're not gonna we're not gonna allow. That's such a good point, and I'm reading. Um one woman who survived being prostituted in two legal brothels brothels in Nevada stated, we did not have the, quote, independent contractor, end quote, freedom to turn down buyers. Management required us to line up when someone arrived at the brothel. Once picked up from the lineup, we would bring the sex buyer back to our room where he was allowed to do whatever he wanted to us. The violent-natured men I encountered in legal brothels, brothels are no different than the men buying sex on the streets. I cannot count the number of times I physically fought with these men in the brothels and how many times I have been raped because I was too scared to fight back. Mm -hmm. And that's actually confusing because, you know, these women are being put in a position where they have no choice. Um, But yet you then try to put yourself in the mindset of them using words like rape and trying to fight off Mm -hmm. their abuser. And it's, it's hard to understand. I mean, it's, Mm -hmm. it's hard to, it's hard to just fathom that this is happening to people and it's happening so regularly. Mm -hmm. And the women in the brothels, I mean, they're under surveillance. So of course they don't feel that they can turn um, buyers down. And on top of that, 
the brothel is usually taking, and I mean, I guess this is another point where the counties aren't really regulating or, or doing anything to protect them. The brothels automatically take 50% of whatever they, the women bring. Okay. And then after that, they still have to pay for their room and board. Um, they have to pay rent. They have to pay for the medical exam every week. And so they end up owing the brothel money, which is debt bondage. I mean, that's, a, that's exactly what it is. And I saw one woman's records. She was paying almost $1,000 a month in rent for a room in a brothel, um, you know, in a rural area. Legal prostitution made Nevada a prostitution tourism state um, where records indicate one legal pimp and owner of seven brothels won the primary election to be a Nevada state legis legislator. Another legal pimp is a county commissioner, which is horrific when you think of. Um, given the culture of Nevada, the political climate there, how do you feel like this lawsuit's going to go? What are your biggest challenges going into this? Mm -hmm. Well, now that the lawsuit is on appeal, um, the sort of direct environment of Nevada is not as much a factor in terms of how I think the court is going to perceive these issues. Um, but it certainly presents barriers for the kind of um, legislative and enforcement reform that, that you would want. I know they have um, tightened up some laws related to sex buying and sex trafficking in the last couple of years. So there's definitely some progress being made on that front. But, you know, I think you do have an environment where a lot of people feel like, oh, this is our culture. This is who we are. You know, the history of the brothels goes well before the legalization in the 1970s. And I believe when the measure was on a county ballot, a couple of years ago, it was something like 80% voted in favor of keeping um, the brothels. I think you do have you know, just the evidence of a culture that has really been groomed to think that this is okay. And when you talk to the women there, I mean, you mentioned the fact that once separated, they realize it wasn't a way to live. But when you talk to people who are actively in this life, is it is there this sense of, you know, like we're lucky we're in a legalized situation. We feel bad for the girls who are on the streets or is it, you know, we're all in a terrible situation. Is it um, the legalization has made it worse. We just wish that we were under the radar. I mean, what's the general census? And I know there probably isn't a general census, but what do you hear? So I haven't had direct conversations with anyone that was still actively in one of the brothels from the conversations I have had with survivors who are out, they kind of differed on whether they felt like being just under the control of a pimp outside of a brothel was better or worse. I mean, many of them are controlled by pimps regardless. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so they, I think it kind of depended on their individual experiences. Some of them thought the brothels were much, much worse and some of them didn't. It was all bad, but, you know, kind of differed on on how they thought about those specific experiences. The lawsuit seeks an order that would one, void any county ordinances licensing brothels, two, invalidate the state law permitting prostitution, which I would be very curious to see if that happens, and three, provide exit services and resources to women prostituted through Nevada's legal brothels. I mean, this is, this is incredible, incredible, incredible stuff. 
Yes, we want to make sure um, you know that what happened to the plaintiffs can't happen to other women with impunity. Um, we know that if we're successful in getting the laws overturned, that obviously puts um, uh, women that are currently depending on the brothel industry for their livelihoods at risk. And so it's important to counter that as well as to remedy um, the harms that have happened to the survivors that are the plaintiffs in this case. I love that. And I think it's so important because so often we look at a problem and we start attacking it on one side, but we don't look at the full picture. And I do think it's important to provide exit services and resources um, to these women. And, and, and too often we think of let's get them out, let's get them out. And then it's like, well, now what, you know, these still, these are women that still, you know, they've been traumatized. They may be in love with their abusers. They may be under, you know, they're dealing with addiction possibly, um, whether or not they have a source, they get any income from their activity, um, at least they have a place to stay. And whether, even if it's horrible conditions, it is a place. And so, uh, you know, we looked at the homelessness numbers, we looked at all of these surrounding mm -hmm. factors and are thankful that you're looking at a desired outcome that encompasses everything. Um, what can we do as a community to help you guys and support you guys in this effort? I think just to spread the word, especially to inform yourselves, the website notsafeforwomen.org has more information about the case. I mean, this, um, this kind of prostitution scheme that Nevada has that has led to this culture, that has led to this sex trafficking, um, is something that many people are trying to replicate elsewhere in the U.S., I say replicate, that's not quite accurate um, because many current advocates are looking to decriminalize all aspects of the sex trade. And so I think it's important that people know what has happened in Nevada because that's, that's data that shows you what happens when there's legal cover for the sex trade. It always leads to sex slavery. And so for people to just be aware and be in a position to talk to their local officials or to their state officials or whomever, um, should that come up in their own community? And and decriminalizing all aspects of the sex trade, like walk us through what that means. Because, you know, we're in a state, you can see laws um, might be strict, but yet enforcement's not there. So essentially, you know, maybe on the books, we're not decriminalizing, but in action, we mm -hmm. are not holding people accountable. Mm -hmm. So a lot of um, legal systems have laws against prostitution, and then laws against sex trafficking on the books. And especially where the buyers are concerned, it's framed as just prostitution. It's a misdemeanor. It's not treated as that big of a deal in many mm. cases. And so it's a problem of, of really framing the issue, right? This is something petty. It's you know just something men do. It's not that big of a deal versus this is a serious human rights abuse. And we're gonna hold everyone accountable who's involved um, in any way which actually goes to another thing that we are asking the court for in this case. Um, and that's a declaration that what Nevada has done in, is un unconstitutional. It's too often, I think gendered crimes tend to be characterized as something individual or personal or unfortunate instead of as something systematic and instead of um, as a systematic human rights abuse. And so that's another thing we're, we're asking the court for is, is that declaration. 
think that's such a, a true statement and one that, you know, culturally is a hurdle we all have to pass in our get over, you know, mentally. And again, I think about all the conversations we've had about sex trafficking or about girls who have young girls who have ended up being the victims of this. And even local law enforcement partners will say, well, you know, she was just a, she's not a good kid. She's doing drugs. She ran away. Um, you know, they have a right, they, they, they don't really have the right to run away, but we're seeing kids run away every day. And you never, you, you kind of toss it off as something different. And we've got to be rethinking and relooking rethinking the way we look at this issue, especially when it deals with um, young women, but also women, women and men, many age and any background and any growing up in any family situation, it shouldn't matter because it's the sale of a human being. And we're a country that has been clear that we don't stand for that, but yet we've been standing for this for too long, where we see, we see it in Nevada, we see it across this country, we see it on social media, we see it um, even in some of our advertisements, sort of that culture seeping through um, all markets. And, you know, that, that's been a big issue for us at Crime Stoppers, one that we've really been trying to address and look at. But it's, I'll tell you, it's not easy to do, um, as what you're doing is not easy to do. Are you, are you optimistic? Are you, um, what are your thoughts, you know, going into this on December 9th? I'm optimistic. I think that as we've had conversations with people framing this as slavery as a 13th Amendment violation really seems to resonate with people. Um, the Ninth Circuit granted oral argument, they don't do that in every case. Um, and I think that, you know, there is a cultural momentum with, with Me Too, and as you mentioned, with people really wanting to do something about sex trafficking, um, that I think the tide is turning. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm very hopeful. Well, we will certainly be following you and the incredible work that Nikosi does. Um, and where can we go to be be keeping tabs on what on what you're doing here? Yeah, the website is notsafeforwomen.org. And I'm pulling it up myself because I've had it as .com and .org, and I think it's both. So perfect. Um, we are so thrilled to have you on with us, Kristen, on the Balanced Voice podcast. Nikosi, you're tremendous partners to our organization. We wish you the most success. And of course, as community members find trafficking to be an issue they, they care more and more about, again, you can go um, to the website for more information, certainly to learn about um, Becca's story. There's a video right there on the homepage. And again, we thank you for your time and wish you the best of luck. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, well, thank you everybody. And we'll catch you next time on the Balanced Voice Podcast. Bye-bye. If you missed anything from the show, check out the show notes at thebalancedvoicepodcast.com. This episode was edited and mixed by the team at Real News PR. Our executive producer is Sydney Zyker. Our advising producer is Katie Meyer. Our media and quality assurance director is Tanya Cruz. And finally, our creative design director is Elizabeth McChesney. To find out more information about Crime Stoppers of Houston or to get involved with our prevention programming, please visit us at crime-stoppers.org. You can find us on Instagram at The Balanced Voice Podcast. And you can find me online at The Run Your Report. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform, and most definitely share with your friends.